0: Hello, hello, this is Alex Burkett, the co-founder of Omniscient Digital, a premium content marketing agency, and relevantly, the host of this very podcast that you're listening to right now, the Long Game Podcast. So before we get started with the episode, I've got a really quick ask for you. If you're enjoying the podcast, would you please, please rate and review us on whichever app you're using, whether that's Apple, Spotify, whatever. A very quick couple sentence review would be amazing tell us what you like, what you don't like, any feedback, please submit a guest request um, and I'll reach out and interview them. Content marketing leader, business leader, anybody you respect that think would be an interesting conversation. Basically, I know how to grow a content marketing program, but I know very little about growing a podcast. The one thing I do know is that ratings and reviews really help us. They really matter. Um, They help us rank when people are searching for stuff on a given podcast app. So by doing so, you're just really helping us get off the ground and reach more people. So, pitch over, that's it. Today, I'm talking to Ross Hudgens. Ross runs Siege Media, my favorite content marketing agency that isn't my own content marketing agency. Therefore, I guess my second favorite content marketing agency. He's also a friend and a fellow Austinite. That is, a person who lives in Austin, Texas, where I live. In this conversation, I ask him all sorts of questions, personally, that I wanted to learn about how he's grown his agency to 100-plus employees. You'll learn how they do marketing for their clients as well as for their own firm, how they think about thought leadership, personal branding, and different marketing channels to grow a services business, why they chose to be design-centric in their positioning, and how they've changed their SEO and content practices while moving more up-market with their clients and chasing bigger and bigger brands and logos. Ross also teaches me some pretty nifty frameworks, like how he uses AIDA, that is A-I-D-A, typically a copywriting framework how he uses that for writing blog post intros as well as outreach emails, and KOB, Keyword Opposition to Benefits Analysis, and how he predicts which blog posts are going to be passive backlink assets that produce links without active manual outreach. So as you can imagine, this conversation is a mini masterclass in content marketing. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Ross Hudgens. So we could start high level. Um, I'm curious, like now, how many employees do you have at Siege? We're like 110 now. 110. So
1: what's a day in the life look for you at 110 employees? So recently made a pretty major shift there. I um, promoted or we promoted an internal um, VP of operations into a COO role. So I was doing pretty much everything, finance, operations, even marketing had started to get someone's help in sales and, and that side of things drew page on our team, but it was pretty split. And then kind of realized, honestly, it was like starting to feel miserable for me. It was like very stressful. Um, I'm not good. I wasn't, it was getting, I was doing a bad job at operations. So I ended up splitting. I realized, Hey, I enjoy this content marketing and SEO thing, or this is what it originally was. And, um, she's better at that than I am. So hopefully the best, one, two punch, um, to now focus on content, which for us means learning development and marketing. So I, I think there's a real Venn diagram there for agencies, or at least for us anyways, where I can help train the team and also use that same material to market us, uh, is kind of the goal. We'll see how it goes.
0: And marketing for you is doing, you run a podcast, you're doing blogging on siege. Um, what else does that entail?
1: Yeah, that's pretty much the the spiel. Podcasts, blogging, uh, Twitter, pretty much. Yeah. Whatever the format kind of applies to. Speaking, this.
0: <laughs> Is this what you gravitate towards naturally? Because you mentioned the operations thing, and I'm grateful that I have a co-founder that's really good and enjoys doing the operational aspects. It's a definite week. Part of my skill set, so <laughs> I get to focus on talking into a microphone, uh, <laughs> write, writing tweets, and doing sales, which I, I love, and coming up with new ideas. So, do you have you identified like your kind of core strength, and like also if that aligns with your interests?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it took me a while. I thought for a while, I thought, "Hey, I'm think I'm enjoying this other thing," and I think I did. And there was just kind of a breaking point of once you're just a certain size that you need experts but yeah i sort of did identify over that over time it's like what brings me joy it's kind of like focus writing thinking about search content marketing and marketing like and what am i uniquely going to be able to add value at and it's probably marketing um for us that i couldn't easily just hand someone else so that was a part of the that kind of led to that process but it sounds like you're doing a, a smart job there
0: yeah, it's like well, for us, um, it's it started out you know fully part time. Like we were all HubSpot employees together, so we're like, there's no feasible way we can stretch ourselves this thinly and actually make this work. So I, I think as a forcing function, it really made us focus on what we uniquely can do, and then to divvy that up among the other co-founders, uh, among like, all right, what are the th- among us three like, what are the things we can only uniquely do, and then everything else we try to outsource and automate delegate, etc. So it became sort of a forcing function early on, which I think has been beneficial as, as we've grown a little bit too, because now we do have, I don't want to call them swim lanes, but we definitely have those core focus areas.
1: Yeah. And that's a pro of having co-founders. Also, there's pros and cons to all this stuff, but uh, that you can do that is awesome. And I'm sure is helpful um, to, to clearly have everyone do what they are best at from start. How long have you been running Siege? Uh, nine and a half years. So next August is our 10th anniversary, which I'm excited about. Knock on wood, making it too. (laughs) hell. Yeah. That's, that's amazing.
0: Can I ask a high level question And that? Um, this is fresher for us and uh, a little bit longer ago for you. Why did you start a content agency in the first place?
1: Yeah. So we, uh, I'm an SEO at the core really. So, uh, when I originally started Google penguin had just happened. Are you familiar with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Penguin was an update that basically changed how links are perceived. And I was a link builder. I was kind of known as that originally and branding myself as that on the side and like running a blog about that. And I saw that hit, hit and I had a manager who micromanaged me and I was not a fan of that. So quit and kind of had been doing this blogging thing on the side, was sort of known for link building. So I kind of felt like I knew how to do content marketing and knew the SEO and link building side and kind of saw the world going that direction of Google wants real content marketing, not just gray hat links. So it kind of had some nice timing to kind of go in that direction of the search side of things with content. And yeah, it sort of started as link building and has gone more and more to just like top funnel, middle funnel, brand awareness, and still tying in links huge part, but um, kind of has progressed from that over time.
0: So you were doing link building where you were working for somebody else at the time or was this freelance thing or what What, what was that like?
1: Yeah, I uh, worked for a company called Full Beaker, which ran its own mortgage and insurance and finance lead gen sites. So my job was kind of build those websites from scratch. And a huge component was link building uh, to kind of like rank for a lot of mortgage terms like streamline refinance, VA, home loan, and. Uh, Medicare, Supplemental Insurance, like stuff like that were the kind of websites I would build uh, with the help of the team. And uh, yeah, there's huge link building component because there were smaller websites, still content component, but because they were smaller, it was just like mostly link heavy lifting that I was helping with. And uh, yeah, I was lucky to work there because the the founder was a, a VC who invested in companies like uh, Minted and I can Has Cheeseburger. Oh, yeah. It's very, uh, yeah. remember uh, that. Yeah, Edward Yim really—he's um, really under the radar, so probably shouldn't even say his name out loud. But, <laughs> but he went to Harvard, super smart guy, and uh, allowed me to basically just run. And he just trusted you, and it was like an entrepreneurial environment. And then was lucky to be able to uh, that change, but didn't realize I kind of was like running a business in a way um, before I actually did.
0: Cool. So you you saw some trends coming in terms of like how content was shifting, and then you thought, all right, I'm going to jump and do this on my own. Um, was that initial jump scary? Like how did you make that jump? And then two, um, how did you get your first couple clients and get the business off the ground back in those days?
1: Uh, yeah, it was scary, but, uh, I, I imagine this might sound familiar to you, but, or potentially familiar, but I was doing, I was hustling on the side and basically working and writing blog posts. I would work nine to five and was kind of socially isolated, but five to midnight, I'd be writing blog posts, creating content um, and really making momentum on my personal brand to generate clients on the side and started getting the first couple of clients. So back in those days, a few sites had gotten hit by Penguin and I commented on Moz.com when they had a big comment section and got a few clients that way and had enough to, basically I could keep the lights on, had like 20,000 in my bank account, maybe like 30,000 or something. And, uh, felt like if I announced that I had quit my job because I had built this thing on the side, I could hopefully generate a few clients from that. And sure enough, I did do that and was able to do that. And worst case scenario is one of those things for anyone who is thinking about doing this stuff, especially if you started working on a personal brand on the side and all of our skill sets in this marketing SEO content side are so, um, highly sought after that worst case scenario i would have just gotten another job the world doesn't end you just get another job Probably. That's
0: yeah. No, that's good to hear. I mean, I, obviously there's, you know, extenuating cir- circumstances, but that's something that of course we've gone through as well. And I keep telling myself that that rational brain side is like, all right, well, six months from now, this all fails, like you're still going to be hireable. Right. But I think like on the emotional side, it's harder. So it's like, once you take that leap, I think it becomes palpable and you understand that. But before you take that leap, it's like, oh shit, wh- what happens if this goes to zero?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, and in your scenario with whether they're co-founders and things like that, it's like, yeah, you have other people riding with you too. So that's like even scarier and like multiple things to kind of weigh and, uh, make sure it goes well. But yeah, you're right. I was definitely scared. I was not like super confident by any means. Uh, but that's the beauty of like doing stuff on the side and building a personal brand. Like it gives you that confidence. Cause I don't think it's a good idea to just like quit and start an agency without any of that started. But, um, agency is about thought leadership and that kind of stuff and building trust from clients. So for probably a huge percentage of us going that route makes sense.
0: So, when did you know um, it sounded like you were starting off on your own, doing some freelancing, picking up some clients? When did you know it was time to go from that and then uh, hire employees and scale it into a, a you know a full full fledged agency?
1: Yeah, I think uh, I had been going for about six months to a year, starting to get more lead flow, and that was going going well. And at a certain point, I just started asking myself like, what are these things are the best use of my time? And some of it wasn't and felt like we had enough revenue coming in that effectively if a percentage of that could go to a new hire and have it be like an entry-level content marketing person, not be the riskiest thing in the world. And uh, it felt right at that point where enough was in built a little more uh, headway in terms of like money in the bank. And that combination made it feel a little less risky. I think I started with like a, contract with someone and then transition to full-time so it felt like six-month contract or something you create some kind of temporary non-permanence i think that also helps your psychology a little uh or so i remember anyway it's been a while
0: right well there's something terrifying about going full-on with uh you know multiple employees that suddenly you're responsible for so the more you can you know temper that with some sort of like fail safe the better in terms of at least starting out and getting off the ground for sure did you who, who did that. you hire like first second and third like as you were starting to scale again? Uh, these are all selfish questions. I'm just really trying to learn for, for our own agency <laughs> here. So
1: you might know one of I think you know one of the people. But first person was uh, Brian Vu. Very lucky to meet him. He like set some expectation for us. He was a content marketing specialist. And then we tried to find a writer. So Brian was a great outreach person. He did a lot of outreach, just traditional for us. And then we thought it would complement with a writer at the time. And we hired Barbara Holbrook, who's still with us today, as a senior front end developer. Turns out she was just a very oh, talented wow. developer. So we got super lucky getting a developer that just happened to be like multi skilled. Uh, Barbara's amazing and um, yeah, still with us and like brings that same care. Now, our third hire was Scott Toosley, who uh, is of HubSpot as well. Very lucky to have found him and, uh, was awesome. I think he we got him to move from Michigan State, or maybe he just wanted to live in San Diego. I forget, but he was content marketer as well. And at that time, it was kind of like more writing and roundups. And then I found four. You didn't ask about the fourth one, but the fourth one was a friend from college who used to be my roommate, and is just an amazing designer. And that kind of like complemented things where he brought design into our equation and kind of got that amazingly got the full suite of what is now our content marketing in like four people.
0: So you were you were doing a lot of the content in house, like you were hiring the writers for Siege, and they were writing for the clients. You weren't outsourcing to freelancers or uh, you know different subject matter experts.
1: It was it was centralized. Correct. Yeah. So we're pretty we're pretty centralized in that way. We'll 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 outsource some things, but kind of what makes us different than I, I'm guessing your positioning and many B two B companies is that we're we're many B2B focus agencies is we're very design focused. Right, right. So we have 35 people on our team, maybe going on 40 are designers. And that tends to skew more B2C and visual and inspirational and um, that kind of route as compared to deep subject matter expert B2B, uh, or at least that's kind of how I've seen it sort of fleshed out anyways.
0: Yeah. So I'm, I mean, this is a compliment, but that's pretty strange for a content marketing agency to be design
1: focused.
0: <laughs> <laughs> did you, how did you come about that? Like, how did you think through that positioning?
1: Good question. I mean, in some ways it's probably kind of just evolved from what started to work. I don't, I wonder how many agencies actually deliberately figure this. They probably do figure it out over time, but I think it, we started as link building, right? And their component of that day one was like, infographics was this Mm -hmm. old school Mm -hmm. way of doing things you give people visual shareable visual elements and they'll be more likely to link to you so that was definitely an early impetus and then I think that kind of just progressed where we brought on photographers videographers um, very illustrators and all that and kind of was we still will do infographics but it's more like great visual assets on page it And still the great copy and copy editing, but that will still be a big component of what we do.
0: That's fascinating. Yeah, I, I can definitely see the natural progression from the link building focus, especially with your personal background and experience. Um, leading into the design focus being, I mean, most linkable assets tend to be image-based or, or at, at least many do anyway, even like um, informational content. Um, something I'm thinking through a lot nowadays because uh, of my you know, relationship with Pep, who he's all about like product positioning and like product marketing, right? Like how to win in, in undifferentiated markets and i'm like drinking a liquid death right now in possibly the most <laughs> crowded space right it's like sparkling water there's a million brands out there so it's like how do we stand out that's something i think a lot about for our content agency and i guess like what i've come up with is people buy us typically because we um, emphasize um you know roi driven content like it's it's kind of like tying uh, our results to business metrics I, I think there's a few agencies i think you guys do that in terms of your positioning but I don't think that's typically been the focus for how content agencies work with clients. And then I would I would say that people tend to stay with us because of our link building and our network that we've built through kind of editorial style link building, guest posts, and all that stuff. So a high level question is today, um, and, and design's part of that. But how do you what do you consider your strategic edge, uh, agency wise? Like your secret weapon? Like why do
1: people hire Siege and, and stay with Siege over others? Yeah. Good question. We're, I think our design team is great. So we have, I'm biased, but world-class designers. So we, we are pretty up market at this junction. So I think we have a team that effectively can nail high quality brand aesthetics pretty consistently. So it's not that easy to just hire a designer who can nail Casper or some of these like high quality brands. It's not that simple to do that and bring that in. So that's the differentiator. Uh, we have, you mentioned relationships. We have, uh, I say like technically the numbers are over 8,000 plus relationships we've built out from sending hundreds of emails each day. So we have a ton of those publisher relationships that we now have in a database across pretty much the entire internet. Uh, we now have outreach technology, which allows us to do that and prospect faster than other people. This is home Uh, built. Like you guys built a, a tool for yourselves. Correct.
0: Nice.
1: Yeah. So um, that that's more recent. We've just kind of added to the stack over time uh, experience in each of these verticals. So we now definitely have just compounding momentum of great case studies and a lot of these verticals we play in all the time. So it's relatively simple. If you're in insurance, if any insurance company comes to us, we feel pretty confident we have several case studies that if you're that company it'd be like, why wouldn't I work with Siege at that point? But that's obviously I'm biased, but that's sort of how it um, feels currently in terms of our advantage. With the link building advantage, that's interesting because it's 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 somewhat similar to how
0: we do it. Do you explain that to clients like or prospects, I guess, like during the sales process? like Because I feel like one of the most common questions I get is like, how do you guys get links? Just because people have been burned so many times by these like cheap link <laughs> buying <laughs> firms. But I never... I never explicitly know how to explain that in like one or two small graphics or like a one pager. So is that something you guys dive into during the sales calls, the sales process, or is that something that the client just feels throughout
1: the relationship? Yeah, we, we do. I mean, we we share sort of the process. We've gotten a few quotes about we're very brand friendly in terms of how we pitch. So that is part of it because we are pitching higher quality brands. We share the logos to be like, your high quality logo We have worked with high quality logos and we'll protect that as part of it. Uh, We are increasingly, as we've progressed, and I talked about like we did infographics day one. Now we're helping people rank for passive link assets. And that's more and more of what we're doing as well and narrating in terms of like, we're good at search. We can get you ranking for things. And we want to help build an engine for you of link acquisition, not just manual because it's more cost effective. So there are several touch points we discuss in sales for sure. Can there. you explain uh, passive link assets? Yeah. So passive link asset, I mean, there's a few common trends, but ef- effectively it's like a a something with l- high view to link ratio. So there mm-hmm. could be trend pieces, stats pieces. There's random things that do this, like calculators, which is where we have dev team as well. That's a differentiator um, because we build interactives. Like even stuff like a recent vertical, I looked at foods high in vitamin D, like foods high end blank is just a high passive link at, intent asset where if you go out and build those early and you know how to rank for them, you'll build kind of a compounding snowball where you can get other things ranking. So it's effectively, yeah, just looking at the search volume and opportunity, but also keep an eye on the ball of like, what are the page level links those have? And you can often find, um, Low hanging fruit because they're low. People won't notice them because they're low search volume. It could have like 200 searches a month, but those could all be reporters and bloggers looking to find a credible thing to add to their article. And if you rank for that, you just build an engine, or you or at least help build an engine in that way. How do you identify um,
0: passive link asset opportunities? Like, how, do you reverse engineer that and see what's already ranking and? and getting a bunch of links via like Ahrefs or something, or is it more so like intuition and pattern recognition? Like, I I could probably say like, all right, keyword statistics, like people who are searching that are probably looking to cite something in a blog post. um, And I may
1: not need to reverse engineer that. Do you guys have a framework for how you find those? Yeah, I mean, a common one is quick answers. So if it's like a, if you're searching something and you're looking for a single sentence or framework that you could copy and paste, that's probably a passive link asset. So examples are like cost of, cost is a framework that also is middle funnel and high search intent or high link intent because they're like the cost to remodel a bathroom or something. Someone will link to that that range and link to you. Uh, Definitions in the B2B Mm -hmm. space are just massive uh, where people are looking at jargon terms like what is content marketing? What is blank? And they'll reference that definition a ton and link to you, so that's that's a pretty common framework. Is are they is there something they can copy and paste? If that's the case, that could be a strong passive link at intent, especially if it's not if it's non obvious in some way.
0: That's cool. Yeah. So I think like I found this trend that uh, these passive link assets are also really good fodder for link building themselves, like manual link building. Um, we've we've always referred to it as buzzworthy content in uh, kind of opposition to product led content. Um, We had to attach a buzzword to it, right? (laughs) Product-led growth. You got to have your framework, right? There's the pillar and clusters. You do, you do. We got product-led content and buzzworthy content. But we started doing this as part of a portfolio exercise where depending on the stage of the company, like if they're already 80, 90 domain rating, it's like we could probably just write high intent content and they're going to rank for it pretty easily. And then, like lower domain rating startups, we tend to do a lot more buzzworthy stuff, and actually use that as part of our link building outreach. Have Have you seen sort of a crossover in terms of like passive link assets also being good fodder for your outreach? If If you're still doing that for clients,
1: yes, for sure. And I would agree with you. Like, if you're on the lower DR side, uh, we we're using hrefs now internally or DA. Uh, mm-hmm. We'll we'll need to associate outreach with that more and more if you are those big brands that can rank for things out of the gates we might not even recommend outreach for them they'd obviously love to not do anything manual ideally but some of those topics don't have link intent like when i think of off top or uh, outreach intent so we have had clients in moving like moving statistics no blogger wants to cover just not really unless it's like a trend piece just general moving statistics, but we did something on customer service statistics that was big and interactive and people did, that's broad enough um, that it was pitchable. And that one uh, was, was link worthy and we also made it big enough too. So there's always that kind of balance of you can't just do it by default, but if it's big interactive custom illustrations, all of those things that kind of help can pass the threshold, help pass the threshold anyways in our experience.
0: Hmm. So you mentioned that you're moving or you moved up market to an extent. I'm curious. So there's many, um, I guess like benefits of that, like the domain rating scale is one of them, right? You can rank for things a lot easier, more difficult keywords, but I'm curious to the flip side of that. Have there been forcing functions or things you've had to eliminate from your typical content strategy just by the sheer necessity of working with these big brands?
1: Good question uh in terms of elimination, we're trying to eliminate outreach where mm-hmm. where it's possible, and I think that is more and more common with big brands with big brands. Things just take longer. we're less likely to be able to do interactives uh there'll often be limitations some things you the thing the the venn diagram of like big link bait doesn't even really exist for them anyway, so it's like tough to really make something that's it's going to go viral for these public companies because they have such, they wouldn't want to be represented in that way. So uh, not that I, I increasingly never th- don't think that's a good idea anyways, but uh, uh yeah, I don't know that's that helpful, but trying to do less manual things is very often the case and things just take longer. No, even in the fact the act of publishing content because they have strict brand restrictions, which isn't necessarily a terrible thing. It's just, we notice on average, like you could add 10 to 20% time to the same blog post simply because someone else is going to need to review it. There's probably going to on average be one more edit round. Those kinds of things are kind of common. The more and more upmarket you go.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, well, I I think this was implicit in there, but like some of the scrappier tactics seem to be less, uh, or a little bit more taboo once, once your brand gets to a certain <laughs> scale. So I, I know at HubSpot, like, uh, I came from startups before that, like CXL and Lawn Starter real early stage and everything we did was pretty scrappy. And then when I would try those same things at HubSpot, I'd get a little slap on the wrist, you know, cause there's so much <laughs> more for a big brand to lose. But then when I would get buy-in on, on whatever tactics, like say, for HubSpot's blog for a long time nobody wanted to look salesy so it was very difficult to get people to write any sort of product related terms best live chat software best form builders even though we sold yeah. products that were related to those things but once we got buy in like we could write those things and immediately rank for them so it's like it took 6 months to get the buy in and the approval and you know the the quality yeah. <laughs> assurance and brand checks but once we were there it was it was so much more smooth than it would be if i was working with you know, say an early stage startup in that arena.
1: Yeah, agreed. agree. It is. It's almost convincing people. That's an interesting navigation now in remote life is like, how do we help these companies get things done when we can't? Well, think we're a hundred percent remote now, but it, getting talking to people and getting like major projects pushed through is an interesting dynamic. Um, that's tough for them as well, but more and more of those companies are going back in office. So hopefully we can, Even if we're remote, we can eventually visit them to help get that across the line. For
0: sure. So, thinking about agency growth, it sounds like designs locked in a lot of the brand stuff in terms of like these bigger logos, you're locking in. How are you thinking about like, are there problems and challenges that you don't feel you've solved yet that you're working through? For example, for us, like one thing that we get asked constantly is like, all right, we've got traffic coming in, we've got high intent terms, but how do we like drive more conversions? So with my background in CRO, I'm, I'm night and day thinking like, how do we come up with a framework to drive more actual leads from this content? So it's the content conversion problem. Are, are there challenges or problems you're thinking through in terms of your services that you feel like you haven't quite quite gotten yet?
1: Yeah, good question. And that, that's a a common challenge or thought process for us as well with content marketing that we're, I literally just did a training for a team, the team on that on Friday to speak to that. But for, for us, something I see being increasingly important is UX design. So we're doing more blog framework design and development for people. And it's kind of a infant state, not infant stage, but um, it's building product line for us. So trying to get clients to make changes to their design and, getting those changes approved, also getting clients to understand that this 50K upfront investment is worth doing when they don't go in the door through that it has been a challenge. And it's something we're kind of ironing out. Also ironing out the processes internally is not straightforward, but that's something we think about as the it's not just the writing. It's not just the design. It's also the framework where that stuff lives, I feel like has overlap with what we do. And we're as this everything gets more competitive, it feels more important to have like every single check mark checked to win, mm. as far as we're seeing.
0: Yeah, I have seen I don't know if this is related to what you're saying exactly, but I have seen that um in terms of your Twitter and your podcast, you guys you definitely have an eye for the holistic, the the strategy, the program. But I've noticed you in particular, um, you tweet about like very micro elements of the content and how the UX should be done in terms of like you know, properly formatting, properly writing, even tips around, like, I think you had some framework around like how to start the intro paragraph. Right. So you, you have a keen attention (laughs) for detail on some of this stuff.
1: Thank you. Uh, yeah, it's, I, I, with agency and you talked about frameworks earlier. I mean, I, I think that's helpful that one of those, that thing I tweeted, I was like, what is a, an acronym we can have that sort of works with training our team and something they can remember so like there's common things and stories our team has started to remember over time like we use ada all the time and even our pitches and ironically hadn't been using as much as we could have been in copy in our article so effectively that's just sort of ada repositioned in a way which was uh, always share preview a preview proof and benefit in kind of that early stage of copy uh, but I do think search is effectively pattern matching. So that's probably my mindset as an old school SEO is like to see what users want and Google wants is kind of pattern matching all the same things you see in the search result, the content, the copy. And I guess my mind kind of goes that direction with looking at what success factors common sites have mm-hmm. and then trying to do those ourselves.
0: So some of those, right. Like some of the frameworks that you're pattern matching here are quite old. Like Ada is, it's been around for a while. I would even say like, I wouldn't say old, but like, it's a lot of first principle stuff, right? So creating a website and reader experience that is top, top notch matching the intent of the keyword, um, you know, to the page that you're creating, how much of your thinking in terms of like how you're approaching content strategy reflects I guess, first principles and long-term, uh, ideas like that. And how much do you care about like Google algorithm updates and, uh, and like new models, like I, pillar and clusters a couple of years old now, but right. There's, there's content and SEO frameworks coming out all the time. How much do you, do you pay attention to like the up and coming, the, the, um, I don't want to like bias my answer by calling it noise, but you know what I mean. There's there's a lot of news coming out, and there's a lot of SEO news in particular. Do you
1: pay attention to that, or how do you approach that? I do pay attention to it. I wouldn't say there's a ton of focus on it. I mean, some of the UX stuff I think is part of that pattern matching in a way where it sort of feels like the winning sites are they're faster on average. They're lighter like you can find you get a quick answer immediately on page so those are things that i do pay attention to is like what is changing but most of it's not some major update it's just kind of a quality signal that that's kind of how i see it is the the bar is going to keep getting is going to go higher over time so we just we're seeing that evolution so we have to think about what will be that next bar but i don't think some like what i know recently google was talking about or people were talking about Google change title tags, paid no attention to that um, relatively as compared to what? how do we keep helping our clients move their, the bar higher? But how about you, Curious, How are you think about that? I'm such a simple
0: man. I, I listened to a podcast <laughs> you did with Neville, and uh, I think he mentioned like, hey, isn't it just content links? And to an extent, I think like the 80 uh, 20 Pareto principle, that's true. So for me, like I, I tend to think of things in the most simplistic terms because I, I think there's some utility in the margins in terms of like some algorithm updates do matter for certain industries, and some some do matter in terms of like content practices that may have been outdated. But if I'm looking at the long game of what Google's trying to do, or at least purportedly trying to do, it's like to deliver the best content for the the keyword at hand. Um, so if we just keep creating content that matches the intent of the keyword, that is you know high quality, best in the world content, and build links to it, I look at that as the the fundamentals, and then we can worry about the margins later. And those things usually fall into place, you know, unless there's some drastic like penalty or, or rank dropping or something like that. So I, I'm just yeah, I'm, I'm into the
1: simplicity stuff. Yeah. I I mean, I'm with you. And that's one reason we're going on market too, is like, that's a subtle thing now is like, you could do those things, but if there's this brand underlying it, that's not going to win long-term, I'm noticing that being a thing where we're trying to make bets on who Google and users want to be to win. Um, So that's one reason we've gotten more selective is I don't think we stress about the updates as much anymore because we're lucky to, and also, are being selective such that those things don't suddenly blank out our clients. Uh, and I, I've known for saying knock on wood a lot, but I feel like I should say that again. <laughs> <on wood.
0: laughs> are, are are there major things? So you've got more longevity here working with clients. Are there there major uh, things that have changed about how you approach content and SEO driven content in the last ten years?
1: Yeah, I mean, sl- the slow transition of just like we would do more link bait, pure link bait stuff that was only link focused. That's how we started. And we wanted to associate that with search volume. They'd almost be these different things mm. and Then we slowly migrated to this Venn diagram where we're trying to get search volume in there. And then we realized, oh, we started measuring the difference between the two and the economics of the, just getting things to rank and driving that long-term. And also like if you, it's just probably plain to see that's what Google wants is like passive link engine type sites compared to manual outreach. So that is kind of how it progressed. And then as it's gotten more competitive, yeah, thinking about the layout updates and things of those nature to like further optimize for that, the passive link intent topics up front is more of what we do. Yeah, that evolution has kind of progressed um, over time and trying to connect it to the site. Like I've seen a lot of businesses be built and kind of decline because they were just thinking about links isolated and we're pulling it all together to be successful.
0: I have a similar question. So with that pattern recognition from the last 10 years, do you have any um, like kind of wild conjectures about where content's moving in the future? So there's some ideas around like, you know, Google's increasingly creating more and more space, basically scraping content and you know, like creating micro sites almost for some keywords, or there's like the trend of artificial intelligence driven content. And like, you know, that, that's like creating blog posts from scratch. Like, do you have any kind of out there, maybe like five, 10 year trends that you're thinking about?
1: Uh, not real. I mean, I'm pretty iterative. It feels like the world feels moves pretty fast, but most of this stuff, if you're like paying attention to it, you can, you can ride with it. In my experience, like I've tried the AI driven content marketing. We've thought about how we can incorporate in our process. We haven't completely given up on it. I'm not seeing a ton of immediate value that wouldn't kind of distract our team in a way. So that hasn't got a lot of focus. I think most of our process is like SERP intent analysis for our topic. So that stuff changes over time, I think how we would operate would change with it. And some of those things are kind of like early. They're sending early signals. Like, as you mentioned, in microsites, I see like visuals more often on some like ideas, keywords. Mm -hmm. We'd already built a lot of visuals, so it might send traffic differently, but hopefully still successful.
0: You're already in front of Uh, that trend by being being visually focused.
1: Yeah, yeah. And think about the SERP because if Google knows it's visual and we already sort of were thinking visuals might redistribute how our clients get the traffic, but I don't think you're like completely missing the mark by at least thinking what that SERP is doing. But um, Uh, you're curious how you're thinking about that and moving towards the talk.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's tough. So I I think like there's merits to all of these, but my question is like, how does that change what we're doing? And typically the answer is not much. So I try to like keep an eye on some of these trends. I, I've played around with some of the AI generated copy tools as well. Um, for writing long form, especially thought leadership blog posts, it's, it's not there yet. I think maybe for some small snippets, for idea generation, I, I don't have the problem of like staring at a blank page and not knowing what to write. I tend to like dive in right away. <laughs> yeah. um, so I think if you, if you have writer's block, something like that could be amazing for just getting words on paper. I do have this like a uh, wacky idea in the back of my head where I kind of want to buy like a domain and just see if I can fully outsource content production to like, you know, uh, a virtual assistant who runs every piece through Ahrefs, ClearScope, and then Jarvis, and <laughs> just see like where it goes. I don't think that's probably <laughs> going to be successful yet, but I do, th- I think it would be interesting. Um, the search intent one's probably the big one for me um, and also like brand signals, but um, one thing that one thing I'm thinking through and I constantly ideate about like creating a tool around this and kind of fiddled around with that when I was at HubSpot is a lot of that process is still pretty manual. I found like matching the search intent to the SERPs. Um, Do you, is that manual for y'all too? Or is that, do you have a tool that can like kind of signify like, all right, is this like a transactional? Is this going to be high intent? Is this going to be like top of funnel? Or is that still pretty much just like Google the search term and see like
1: is it product pages? Is it information? Like what's ranking? Yeah, it's relatively manual. I mean, we use HS as our kind of like North star tool, but I mean, I know there's tools like market Muse and things like that, that will kind of give you those things. They're generally pretty expensive. I, I think with a lot of these things, it's like you can automate, but there's some value in just, if you're writing it, doing that work and learning from it. Uh, because you if you don't you 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 lose a part of that in that discovery and it's not that hard to do one search for that topic right such that, that seems instructive.
0: Yeah, I, I think I agree with that. I think I agree with that in terms of like automating the content production too. I mean I guess there's certain terms that you do want just a quick answer, but I also find that like even if you're if you're writing for search, there's still some je ne sais quoi there's, there's still some intangible element that a writer can put into the piece right whether that's a style whether that's like uh, a particular viewpoint or quotes from experts i do feel like if you just generated it from like basically rehashed wikipedia articles it wouldn't have the same resonance maybe if it's on a, you know a huge website that's just going to rank easily anyway but yeah i think there's something intangible about doing some of this manually
1: for sure and yeah the tools will always have some value and those things are worth keeping an eye on like and, and to your point, the AI driven stuff, like we've considered and even recommend it for some clients, like if you have super long tail city pages that need like 100 words of copy or something and have 50 searches a month, like maybe a tool like that, that's then edited could be so valuable. Like
0: pro- product descriptions or something yeah. where it's like, you've got thousands of SKUs or something like that.
1: Exactly. But you should have never hired an agency like us or you for that task. Cause it is so commoditized at that point. So it's effectively like you're, maybe it's competing for the commodity work, but not, not the high really end trying stuff. to win that commodity work. Yeah. Uh,
0: okay. I have the P the Peter Thiel question here. Um, how, what do you believe to
1: be true about content
0: marketing that most people would disagree with you about?
1: Interesting. I, that's a tough one off the top of my head. I mean, I do say a lot that we're so design focused, like people see, words as content marketing and i see content marketing is the whole experience of design copy etc and for sure it's less accurate and the copy gets more weighted in these very technical spaces so i totally fully understand that but i think there probably are a lot of people proceeding as if co- content marketing was just i need to go hire this freelance writer and um i don't think that's really what's is what creates success mm-hmm. most mm-hmm. of the time and especially in bc Gotcha.
0: Yeah, I like that. Um, All right. So I'm going to ask a couple of questions on like uh, client stuff, client acquisition for the agency Um, and your marketing because you said you're focusing more on marketing yourself. And I've noticed, uh, well, one, you do a very like high production uh, video and podcast. Um, and then also I've noticed a lot more tweets and LinkedIn stuff from you. So how are you thinking about growing your personal brand? Do you think about this proactively? Does, is it strategically focused? Do you plan ahead? How, how does all that wrap up into, um, into Siege's marketing?
1: So the answer is in the last six months, but not really. It's, we haven't done as much because of that thing. I kind of led with that. I've been so fragmented in our focus. Mm. And thankfully we had gotten to the snowball effect that we had so much referrals and me just randomly sharing a tweet or a blog post that it didn't matter. Um, but we, that wasn't, that's not sustainable. It's not what I should be doing. So my goal is to be that, do that more. So I think with things like you're doing things that I had done when we were doing more planning, I'd do these interview series like you're doing. I'd be deliberate about, it wouldn't even necessarily have a huge audience reach, but if that person could be a lead source, hey, turns out I just sent you a lead. <laughs> Is that coincidence? Maybe not. Um, right. That You get deeper relationships with people through just that. That was one strategic thing we did. High f- definitely high quality production value. I think that kind of connects to that upmarket kind of thing we're trying to go for. Um, overall, yeah, we started doing these takedowns at one point where we we're kind of breaking down websites. I actually got some negative feedback about that because you're not going to get a client from someone saying, or maybe you can, but the way I positioned it, of it being negative, like most of those people are offended by saying, do this and this better. We've kind of repositioned it into, here are some adjacent people where like, for example, I was going to do one on brides.com coming up, anyone in the wedding space that's in that space, which is lucrative and big could reach out to us. Or maybe brides.com is at least complemented by that. They probably don't need the help directly, but who knows, maybe that r- leads to referrals or word of mouth as compared to the negative kind of touch point of, um, you need to improve this and this and this but I've seen people do it well. So I think there's multiple ways to- with
0: the, the breakdowns were you, were you emailing the people afterwards and like, uh, using that as sort of sales enablement sales collateral, or was it just sort of like hoping that people would come in and see that?
1: I would tag them on those networks. It does. It does feel like tagging anyone kind of lowers your reach on most social networks these days. So I, I hadn't done that. I, at times I did, but it's one of those things with more time, um, would circle back to that. Because I do think it's a smart strategy to email it to them.
0: That's something we've been wanting to try. And I am kind of obsessed with the very concise, uh, targeted account-based marketing approach. Um, We had Andy Crescidina on our office hours, little virtual webinar series a couple months ago. And he says he's seeing smashing success, doing basically original research for like a very small niche. So he'll take like email marketing software tools and just do like, you know, an analysis. He's like, you know, web design. So like he'll analyze all their websites on like multiple dimensions, get them on a webinar and like do this whole original piece of content there. I love that. I want to try it. I want to try the teardowns. It's like all this agency marketing, especially if you're going for the high end is so fucking time consuming. (laughs) Like I've never found, like, I can't find a scalable tactic. And maybe that's like a, a feature. Maybe it's like, the people who are willing to roll up their sleeves and do that stuff, maybe they're the ones who do get the bigger clients,
1: yeah, I mean social does compound like Twitter and LinkedIn. I think there is effectiveness, and I've thought about it with video and some of the like sometimes video it's not worth going that deep in or that high quality when you can just share a tweet that's like. 100, 280 characters or whatever and get strong reach. Probably doesn't go as deep in terms of actually building trust and things like that. So there's pros and cons, but those things are real. I've seen people just repeat, like, uh, Pep, has done a good job of that. It seems like just he's so good at yeah. that. No, yeah. well, he said on a recent podcast too,
0: because he's got this. Have you listened to his podcast? It's like the yeah, really yeah. well produced, right? Oh, you were on his podcast. That's right. Of yeah, yeah. I <laughs> to it. Um, He was talking about how obviously CXL built their brand on on content marketing and like you know thousands and thousands of uh, hundreds of thousands of visitors a month. But he mentioned something about how he poured hours and hours of time into a blog post that he thought was one of the best he'd ever done. And he looked at the analytics and he's like, it's a couple thousand people. I get that on one LinkedIn post or like one tweet. So we kind of started thinking through like the cost benefits trade-off there. And I've been thinking through something similar. It's like, do I spend a couple of days to a couple of weeks writing a long form blog post when I don't know it's going to land? So the idea that I'm coming up with is sort of a decentralized content approach uh, or that's the term that we're we're trying to coin for it, um, and it's it's sort of fractal. So like the least amount of time I can spend on the input, and the more I can repurpose that when the feedback actually uh, resonates, the better. So if I can do like a short podcast with the co-founders on an idea like decentralized content, and then do a tweet about that, and then I see that it's getting traction, then it's like oh oh okay maybe we can write a blog post on this now. But until then, it's like I, I, I don't know unless you've already built up the brand that you know, a 2,000, 3,000 word blog post is is going to have the same kind of expected
1: value nowadays. Yeah, I think that's fair, especially in B2B. Uh, I think I've actually done that a decent amount. So I'll tweet something and it will connect and then I'll then create a video off of it. Ironically, it seems like the video doesn't do as well. It's probably because I'm re-promoting the same idea in a, mm. and a smart, smaller audience. But that doesn't mean like in the context of your website that doesn't have value a strong value because clearly it resonated with someone originally, but it's that re-promotion of the same idea that I've felt. It's not that it does badly, but that's just uh, the one thing I've noticed um, with that. But I I would agree, like in general, it seems like this halo effect of like all this brand, you still should do this. Like, I don't think you or really I should be doing search driven stuff. um, but for those 90 DR sites, maybe a little bit more. Right. Maybe
0: if the market's a little larger, the, the total addressable market, because there's only a subset of clients that are actually going to be you know, worthwhile for agencies like ours anyway. Um, right. So do, do y'all do SEO and content for your own site or?
1: No, no. I mean, we sort of like tried to not fall on our face for a while, <laughs> but then yeah, literally no effort on it for a long time. We kind of wung it. Some of the articles perform and did nothing, but then you realize you're up against Moz, Ahrefs. We can't win uh, for those unless we're spending so much effort on that, and the leads are so low quality. Relatively, we'll occasionally like have pages that I'm not going to be mad if they rank for things, but I'm not putting. We're not putting a lot of effort into it um, compared to yeah, just like a few tweets and thought leadership. That makes a lot more sense.
0: Exactly the same as us. In fact, we, we actually started doing SEO-driven content um, when we were trying to scale up and like build an inbound channel. So we have a bunch of articles on the site that are like, like what is content marketing and stuff like that? Um, they didn't rank. Um, and then also, just an intuitive idea that I had was if they did, how many people that are searching what is content marketing are going to pay $10,000 a month for content marketing? right? Like the sales cycle on that, it's going to be like a couple of years out and there's going to be no attributable value to that blog post. So whereas like maybe that person could sign up for a free trial on SEM rush or Ahrefs or something like that. So maybe they can capture value from that keyword, but in like a high-end services business, it it just didn't make sense to me. So we've kind of gone the opposite direction and, and paused a lot of that content in favor of more of the thought leadership stuff.
1: Yeah, we're similar. We even had a something on like how to increase website traffic, which is, was this like hero piece of content for us that I occasionally updated, and it was ranking well against very competitive because I put like all my time and effort to it. And I don't think we ever really got a lead that converted from it, um, despite a few kind of like knocks on the door, like for something that you would think would tie to services. Not really. Uh, search, I think it's mostly top funnel for us. You, you kind of want it, but not not really um, right. something to invest in deeply.
0: Maybe you get some brand awareness, like the HubSpot play, where it's like just appear everywhere for all terms. And eventually they'll see that orange logo and say, well, I do need a CRM. And I've seen them several times. Yeah, so yeah. For HubSpot, two two yeah. For services, probably not as much. So you what, don't want to
1: not do it. Yeah, but go ahead.
0: Yeah. So what, what, what is your ideal client? Like, how do you, what are the signals that somebody is a prospect you'd want to work with?
1: Uh, we look at, the, the TAM, so are, are they doing, say, 100000 a month in search or more? Or could they be doing that if they're a brand new startup based on what the audience looks like? Did they recently raise funding and that exists? Um, are they probably would love to have people that have over 30 employees, probably 100 plus now because under 30 is like high risk. Um, not an affiliate site. We used to take those on. Now we don't take them on at all because... Um, their high churn risk are they going to win long term so we look at the product do we like it uh what are the reviews of that company even looking at subtle things like what are the glass reviews of the site like will they treat our team well those are kind of signals we're also looking at because team retention is just so important and all of those things i think directly relate to how some of these companies do um in the, the long term as it gets more important
0: yeah, I love that. One thing that um, we found, and I, I'm still, this is still a hypothesis, but we found that people who already have somebody working on content are better clients. And I don't know, that was actually paradoxical. That's what I would have thought. I would have thought that like a director of marketing comes in and they're like, we we want to outsource this function fully. But I found that if we're working with like a generalist director of demand channel marketing they tend to look at it as a, a test. Like I, and I actually listened to a podcast to put out recently on this, which is like, you can't really test content marketing as a channel. It, it's a strategy and you've, you've kind of got to dive in or you're not going to see the results. And then if we're working with a founder directly or an executive, it's like, they're probably too small and that founder is going to realize... Shit, I've got I've got to raise the next round. Like I can't spend time like yeah. editing each blog post that these guys hand us. So that was a little paradoxical to me, and I'm I'm still not totally sure that's 100 true. But we we now tend to look um, whether they're actively doing content already. Um, well, the other thing is that if they're doing content, we don't need to sell them on the idea of content,
1: which is always big big battle if you have to do that. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Uh, for, for us, we uh, I'm sure someone's going to listen to this that falls into this so don't be offended but (laughs) seo people are generally not good clients for us we prefer general marketers because seo people are just like we want links and that's all we care about and we want that venn diagram because it's tough in the link world to be held to like 20 links a month and hit that number every that's a huge amount of stress for link building teams each month and often it's also ironically Maybe not ironically, but people who come in this door through links actually don't perform well because they're not right. connecting the two of like the quality of the site and things like that. So we saw that pretty consistently. Uh, so that there, I think SEOs are getting better and better at that. But it, that was kind of a, mo- uh, a persona type that we still get because I'm an SEO, but um, it's not as positive in his, recent history.
0: We've had that as well. And it is stressful. It's the best when you can just get like um, kind of all the nodes in the system together. So the content strategy and plan production, uh, promotion, and optimization. But some people come in with very specific desires and needs. So when a client comes in like that, um, it doesn't have to be just like, you know, we want 20 links a month, but how do you approach like goal setting when it comes to clients? Maybe they want something specific, like we want 20% growth month over month traffic, or we want we only want more free trials or, or, you know, like they have very specific goals. Like how do you, how do you work with them in, in terms
1: of expectation setting and, and mapping those things out? Yeah. I mean, some of those we'll just pass on if it's just a link focused person, that could be a red flag. So might pass on them, might take a few calls and try to redirect them and see how up on that they are, but that could be a red flag. Uh, we do have a specific model for building um, ROI for them around links and content. So we see a link is worth 10000 a month or 8000 a month, and we can generate eight a month or whatever the number is a month. We can create a ROI equation with using traffic value on hrefs. So that's mm-hmm. one thing we do very commonly and traffic as well. We'll do the same with content. If links aren't, is like th- that equation isn't as strong, but content is, say the Traffic value for what is content marketing is probably like a couple hundred thousand a month, but maybe more average things are like 5,000 a month. So we do 10 pieces of content each month and it's 5,000 per month. We can start building like an ROI equation to pitch against them. We won't get into the granular details of like, we're going to generate 20 free trials per month at that stage. Uh And we don't often get pressed on that, but curious, how uh, yeah, how do you guys do that? And how do you think about it? We do it
0: similarly. We we really try to map to ROI
1: without giving very
0: concrete specific targets, especially when it comes to trials. Like there's so many things that can affect that, down to like the landing page or the seasonality of the business. Um, we typically map it out in three dimensions, which is like a leading indicator of website rankings, or really like we'll go with the input level. It's like, are we placing the links? Are we place? Are we writing the content? And are you qualitatively cool with that? Um, and then the next step would be like. Are the keywords we're going after that we've agreed to, are they starting to rank? And then there's the organic traffic layer. Are we increasing organic traffic? We usually map that out on some sort of a growth model uh, based on Mm -hmm. the predicted click through and search volume for those terms uh, just to get some loose approximation. And then finally, we do the macro goal, the lagging indicator, which is like how many leads or we mainly work with B2B or customers for B2C. Are we actually producing from a last click basis from this content? Which we always, uh, you know, caveat that with like the, the content's probably producing much more, but we're just going to show like the directly attributable stuff. And, and that's really like the last thing. Like we don't usually see results for that, you know, definitely not in the first five to six months, but that, that's like the long-term thing they care about. So we usually give them like a dashboard for that as well.
1: Nice. Yeah, that's one thing we we are we are kind of ex- trying to dig in deeper and do more technical B2B and expand more in B2B and something I've noticed in my ROI calculations and curious if you see this as well. And I hear John Henry Shirk say similar of like, it's a little bit simpler to use traffic v- value as a metric in B2C. I don't know if it's just, probably just first touch attribution is easier. So maybe more is being spent on PPC that makes those numbers easier. But like in B2B, the numbers generally seem a little lower on HRS and places like that. So it feels... If you're un- under your value to just say the traffic value is 20K a month or
0: something. B- B2B is tough too. I-, I don't know where this study was and I can link to it once I find it after this, but I saw a study where um, somebody took like three different SEO tools and searched like, I don't know, a hundred or a thousand B2B related keywords. And like the traffic volume estimate was just wildly variable for these terms. And then like when they would rank for them, they would notice that the traffic is way different than the estimates from the tools so, and I found that with uh, with HubSpot, by the way, like some of this play that I was I was doing with uh, publishing a lot more product-led content, I remember specifically there was a search keyword that was like a hundred search volume. I, I didn't even, I barely got it on the roadmap. Like it was you know just kind of a throwaway <laughs> thing. And that listicle ended up producing, it was like number five or number four top performing blog post of any of the content in the last like whatever, 10 years in terms of like driving freemium growth. So I think that stuff's really hard to predict, um, especially given the SEO tools and especially given the B two B niche. I guess like because a lot of those high intent terms show up as like sub two hundred search okay. volume and those rarely get you know prioritized in the roadmap. So it it is really tough. I, I think attribution uh, and optimization are kind of underinvested areas in content, and those those are just really tricky problems that we're we're hoping to chip away at. I think cuz those are always like what you're and in the end gold on it's like do they like
1: you <laughs> and are you you know producing those numbers and can you show that you're producing those numbers for them so that was an area we thought about exploring and I like even interviewed some people over time was an analytics position like thinking about that evangelizing as a service offering probably still is something there to your point uh, I just never got never got far enough but it's it's clear there's value there especially probably maybe even more so on the B2B side to clearly quantify if you can quantify your value you're you're can charge more and harder to replace for sure
0: you've got it, yeah, so speaking <laughs> of results and like the timeline, um we know that content takes longer than say paid acquisition PPC to get that feedback loop. I say it's like gardening versus hunting, right like you've got a long cycle before <laughs> you actually see the the results pop through. It's a good analogy. <laughs> So how do you handle that in the initial months? Like, I'm sure there's some, but most people at this point that are hiring agencies for this price point probably understand that it's going to be a little bit longer of a cycle, but how do you handle, um, you know, that, that, uh, expectation to show results in the first couple of months? Um, do you do anything particular to show the clients that you're you know, moving in the right direction even before you can attribute, um, you know, ROI to that content?
1: We do something called a keyword opposition of benefit analysis, where we're looking at the keyword difficulty in month one of like, say, 100 to 200 topics, depending on the vertical that will allow us to prioritize things that hopefully can rank faster. So that's part of the equation. There are leading indicators with like link building driven content when we are doing manual outreach that they see we're getting quality links. So they know something's going to come down the pipe if... That's a leading indicator. We do say that you should be able to see rankings start to show like page three, page two, that should start to happen even if um, you don't have traffic right away. So that's a kind of common and can, should happen hopefully pretty quickly. And you do expectation set in the initial proposal, of like traffic will be here. We don't go as granular saying month two, you're going to have this traffic because I think that would create a lot of stress for the team. We do Mm -hmm. point like 12 months out. Like this is where you should be. We will set link goals also. Like it's going to ramp up like a graph um, up into that final number. But thankfully we don't get a ton of pressure and that might have to do with that expectation setting up front.
0: Right. Larger clients, larger um, time horizons in the first place. I think that That's what I try to explain, um, you know, both internally and when I'm speaking to clients is like, it sounds like we're just pushing for a longer deal, but it really like aligns incentives for both of us. Um, So we're actually allowed the space and time to create better content and allow you guys more space to like, you know, have the expectations um, properly set. So in month six through 12... I mean, like the results are going to seem exponentially better than the results from month zero through six, just by the way, the sheer nature of how SEO works. It truly is like a garden, like an iceberg, you know, rising up through. It's like the first couple of months, it's barely peeking through. And then all of a sudden it's like, holy shit, we're ranking for everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it is that balance. I can understand a client and it's like finding that navigation because you... Their fear is you don't want to wake up in 12 months and have nothing, which there's definitely many people that have done that, right? So it's like, how do you... That balance... um, And that's probably where you you start building trust as an agency and things like that. Thankfully, they start having a little more trust um, of that timeline, for sure.
0: What's the most annoying client questions that you get?
1: Uh, Something we get... (laughs) Something we get relatively commonly we do build a FAQ document. I think I realize I don't have it on my FAQ, but they ask us to promote their content a lot. So very often it won't there won't have an outreach market associated, there won't be design assets associated. It will be too promotional, too heavy-handed um so that will cause us to not have success. So we get that question a lot and um probably on us to like better expectations set and we're going to do a podcast on that wait so you
0: you mean like the the content itself is too promotion heavy like it's kind of like a a product related piece exactly so it's like you know best live chat software and it's like from live chat inc or something like that
1: right so like if i'm cold pitching that to some communication site realistically i'm gonna be like this is just an ad for this company so i'm not gonna link to it right uh, in the context of how we pitch things, I know you maybe you could do that through some guest posts or something, but that's not really how we pitch it. And you guys have an FAQ document that's on your website, or that's something that you give clients on kind of month one on kickoff? Uh, it's, in, it's a sales collateral piece, so we'll send it to them as part of the sales communication.
0: That's that's interesting. That's I, I'm I'm going to take that idea. I like the idea of an FAQ. Um, we get that as well in terms of, um, frequently asked questions that I should probably just write a blog post about definitely the, how do you do link building and, and all of the nitty gritty around that is a common one. And then like the, how soon do you, or how soon can we expect results is that's not an annoying question. I I totally understand it, but it's one of those
1: where it's like, I could definitely just write like a formulaic answer on that one. that, I, I, we get that question. I, and I agree that. When I hear that, that scares me about that's a high churn risk client that says, if they're yeah. asking that question, they're probably ready to eject. Um, and th- yeah, that, that's one of the reasons why we started qualifying like over 30 employees and things like that. It's like, you don't want to be an expensive line item. And you, th- for them, they don't hire, don't hire things that are expensive line item either that you're going to be, you have to ask that question for. You're just not ready to invest in that. And that's Okay.
0: Yeah. That's something that, um, I actually talked to a prospect about, um, is basically they don't want, um, they they don't want to work with clients who perceive them to be like their highest cost item, because it's going to be very stressful for both sides. Like you want it to be, to feel like a comfortable investment. Um, otherwise there's just going to be far too much micromanagement and far too much expectations in terms of like, all right, can we see the ROI immediately? This is our highest purchase in terms of our like P and L here.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Agreed. Yeah. And it, I would agree that it goes the other direction. Like huge clients are not good either. Then you feel pressure. You can't increase prices on them. Lots of navigating. And if you sweet lose spots. Them, a you're, you're in this like uh, flustered, you know, like what do we do now? How do we replace that? Exactly. And that's, that's something we've thankfully been pretty good at over time is not have anyone that's too big yeah. for that reason.
0: So uh, on more of the personal side, what, uh, who, who are you chasing? What's your long game?
1: uh I'm chasing enjoying the work. Like that's uh, I like being SEO and content marketer. I enjoy that a lot. And getting back in the weeds and doing that side of things is something I'm excited about in kind of this new role. now that we've hired a COO, so yeah, it's it's interesting having done this for nine and a half years. Definitely resetting and like getting out of the operation side of the agency life is stressful, but. I don't have a clear endpoint, and I know it's cliche to be like the process kind of thing, but, um, thankfully have done pretty well in the nine and a half years been doing this. And now it's mostly about do great work, help our team grow. That's fulfilling. I think you have to love people, um, in agency life as well. And, uh, yeah, as long as that's the case, hopefully hopefully I'll, I'll be doing this for five, 10 more years. I love it. So I started out by asking you what
0: the day in the life is. So it sounds like you're really just chasing like the ideal day, um, in, in the same company, like that's, that's really the ideal model. So do you have an ideal day? Like what's your, what's your dream, like Saturday or whatever, <laughs> your dream Tuesday, uh, Tuesday,
1: Tuesday, uh, <laughs> not many meetings working, probably no meetings, to be honest. Uh, maybe one, like I do enjoy training where I'll just be like heads down working on, like a process or I know I said, I don't like operations, but like content marketing strategy process is like, I find a lot of joy of like, Oh, did I, did we just improve 50 people doing this thing for all of our clients? That's exciting to me. So writing, doing that, sharing content, hopefully that content is received well when I share it. Uh, That's a positive. Um, Yeah. Just having that flow state of like working on a big project heads down is like, most enjoyable to me.
0: But what's that look like for you? I think I'm chasing the flow state as well. I think um, through working at a corporate job, uh, I've realized that I really dislike looking forward to a week filled with meetings. Like it, Anything on my calendar, it seems to like w- uh, weigh a little burden in the back of my mind where I can't fully immerse myself in the task at hand. And I find when I'm happiest and most fulfilled, it's like, whether it's writing an article, and you know, just three hours later, I look up, I'm like, "Whoa, where did the time go?" Or, I mean, coding, or, or you know, digital analytics, what, whatever I'm doing, I love to like immerse myself in that. So, I think the ideal uh, day for me would look like I know Arnold Schwarzenegger and uh, Mark Andreessen both talked about this, where they actually, for a while, I think, I don't know if they do this still, refuse to schedule anything. And like, if you wanted to take a meeting with them, you would have to like call them that day and say like, Hey, can we do a meeting? And like, if they didn't feel like it, they wouldn't do it. And if they did, they'd be like, all right, let's meet right now. And I kind of love that. I I don't know if that would get stressful eventually, but I like that ethos. And I like that as kind of a, a desired end state, who knows if it's ever accomplishable, but I think that's probably what I would work towards too. And, you know, spending time like writing, reading uh, thinking, you know, forward facing kind of innovative uh, products and services that we could offer. Um, and then networking, like I love doing the conferences and like the
1: coffee meetups and all that stuff. Yeah, I'm with you. It's kind of just like talking to people that are smart at doing this stuff is enjoyable and like that a lot. Um, yeah, it's something I built to or, or I was doing sales. We just delegated that to someone very uh, smart who's been in our team for a while. I'm still helping out, but hopefully even less sales calls and things like that. So I can focus on Pretty much that same Venn diagram that you got. Yeah.
0: Uh, Weirdly enough, I actually like sales. Uh, I found that to be enjoyable. I I think it's because it's small scale. And if I were doing it all day, every day with like my meeting count, you know, my calendar completely filled with meetings, it wouldn't be fun. But that kind of satisfies that people part just a little bit, at least at the scale I'm doing it.
1: Yeah, that's true. I I enjoyed it for a long time. Don't get me wrong. Um, I think that's probably part of the evolution. I don't know if you know. Uh, his name is like Andrew something. He wrote about, he had this great thread recently where he's a super popular guy. I forget the name. Off and the Wilkinson, Andrew Wilkinson. Yes. You know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about? Yeah. yeah wrote uh, the, the burnout stre- thing. Yes. So he wrote like, he was doing so well and and like everything was going well and his argument was like, all this dopamine release, like stop creating joy. And it's rough, but like, it's weird. I no longer get any kind of dopamine release when we, we sell a client or close a client. It's strange. I think probably is like over time kind of got there. Um, so it's like refunneling around where you get that release, but that's a really interesting thread. You should link to that and show notes Dude, of you.
0: I've been uh, feeling the same thing. Cause I've been listening to the same podcast that, that inspired that thread to all the Dr. Andrew Huberman stuff yeah. on, on dopamine and uh, Anna key and I felt the same thing. And that that actually, that's interesting because we were talking about social and thought leadership and like being on all these platforms. And I have such a, a, a double-edged sword there because I know that it, it works for my business and I know that it's effective for driving thought leadership and clients, but I hate spending so much time on Twitter and LinkedIn. It's just like <laughs> that flood of information
1: at all times. Do you Do you deal with that too? Yeah, it's it's definitely a two-sided coin. I know it feels like there's definitely a contradiction in there somewhere of of that. I don't actively just sit on Twitter and scan it or LinkedIn for sure, but there's I think most people would be lying that are successful like you share something, you're going to like refresh it and see how it's going and mm-hmm. that you can be done when you get all the notifications, yeah. yeah. And then you you get addicted and uh, refresh it and distracted and all those things. So it's it's a tough balance. For sure. Uh, so that's what, yeah, kind of focusing inward, which I think is good. It's also good for probably service. Like I really do believe you can be very, very successful, especially once you've hit a certain flywheel, which I'm sure you guys will get there of like enough momentum of referrals and things where you just looked inward and improved your processes all day and all night. Like I don't even think you even need that much outward marketing to be honest. And it's probably far, far more exciting for clients to have a client that thinks of them that, that way versus the reverse. But, uh, yeah. You still got to do both. You can't give it up, but... Yeah.
0: Well, especially during the climbing, the scaling phase, for sure, you need to get to that point where you've got the base and like the constant referral pipeline and inbound pipeline. And that's that's what we're, or at least personally, I'm working towards. And then, yeah, luckily, like you mentioned before, we've got co-founders, one fully focused on services and one essentially fully focused on operations. So that at least gives me like the, the freedom um, to put my head up and, you know, kind of go outward. But eventually, I think it would be really nice if I could just... Schedule my tweets and, and you know go off and you know, do some more <laughs> deep work and client work.
1: That used to be a strategy that I employed That I, maybe I'll go back to if I start flying more. Or who's like suggests scheduling content. It, it can be dangerous. Schedule content when you're on a flight or something. Because <laughs> right. that way you'll just wake up and all of the notifications will have happened, and hopefully nothing was broken. But uh, that that'll be optimal for not not getting stuck in the black hole
0: for sure. Um, would you want to do a couple of rapid fire, um, unrelated to content questions? Sure. Cool. Yeah. Um, so they're not technically rapid fire. Like you can take as long as you want to answer them, but, um, I just call them rapid fire. So, uh, <laughs> who, who do you admire professionally and why?
1: Uh, will Reynolds comes top of mind Sierra interactive just has done it just like 10 years ahead. Uh, clearly cares about his team. Uh, does the right things is like handing his company back to his, his people as well. Clearly cares about his clients as well. Um, yeah. So much admiration for Will.
0: If you could create your own category in jeopardy, what would it be? And would you get every question, right?
1: Wow. Uh, I probably would not. Cause I'm not good at random trivia, but I guess if I'm rigging the game, you could do. SEO. I probably, that's, I tell my what, and it's definitely true. I'm like literally good at one thing, probably hopefully getting better at parenting, but SEO and content marketing, most of other things I'm just not very good at.
0: You ever talk to people who don't work in digital marketing and SEO and try to like explain what you do. It's, it's the most frustrating and like awful thing <laughs> so you've got so, so much like inside just like weird jargon and stuff some of my friend group they're like my friend Mark is also an SEO and we'll go on tangents about like page rank sculpting or something and they're like guys <laughs> they could have no
1: idea what you're talking about <laughs> yeah that's I always use the analogy of trying to rank for shoes and we help companies rank higher for shoes so you buy their shoes and that's that's my mom uh, explanation <laughs> I love that Uh, which talent would you most like to have? Oh, it would have been cool. I played, um, division three football for in college at a small school. And if I was maybe like three inches taller, maybe slightly bigger frame, I could have played offensive line maybe. So maybe that, uh, where did you go to school? Chapman university in orange County, orange County, California.
0: Nice. Nice. Yeah. Yeah um do you consider yourself more
1: scientific or artistic uh that's an interesting one i I cop out answer but i feel like somewhat then diagram of that and then i'm sort of data driven i'm not great on either side but somewhere in the middle um Mm -hmm. sort of artistic because we were running a creative agency but then using data and roi i think there's at least an argument that maybe that's accurate
0: i think that's what makes an effective growth focused marketer for sure i mean that's what i look towards and especially like experimentation and cro people tend to have this like wild mad scientist side (laughs) well i guess that
1: yeah so they have both yeah nice yeah i actually did a b testing a lot of my last company and i got i'm not an a b tester but maybe there's a a little bit of that in my my soul as well.
0: well that's science for sure yeah um if you could have dinner with one person dead or alive who would it be
1: Uh, Na- Neville Ravikant stands out as one mm. person. Probably is not the ultimate answer, but he came quickly. I do like Andrew Wilkinson. And now he's even impressed me even more that he had that kind of self aha, uh, but he's very clearly smart business person.
0: But people yeah, that guess, are
1: yeah. happy and successful, I don't think there's like s- super... Which both those guys, or maybe Andrew, not as much, but happy and successful is kind of like the North star. Well,
0: they seem like they've got a good balance um, and have really thought through their desired ideal day. I know actually Andrew Wilkinson specifically, that's, that's why I asked you the question on the ideal day is I got that inspiration from him. Hmm. Uh, he wrote a Medium post a long time ago where when he was building his agency, uh, MetaLab, he thought through what his ideal work life would look like, but the way he did it was via negativa. So he thought like, what would my worst day look like? <laughs> and he's like, all right, oh, I filled nice. meetings, urgent tasks, like blah, blah, blah. And he basically inverse that. And that's how they formed the culture of their company. So I, I love, I love when people think consciously about that kind of thing
1: and not just like, yeah. how do we grow at all costs? You know? Yeah, that's smart. And I, I probably got lost in that a little too much in the last two years and, glad to finally like flip that switch and get back, hopefully get back to it. But I love, that's a great way of thinking. And probably like should set a reminder once a year to do that audit.
0: (laughs) Totally. Um, What do you consider the most
1: overrated virtue? Overrated virtue. Uh, So what would a rapid fire list of virtues be? I guess.
0: (laughs) Yeah. See, this is is one of the tough questions. Um, I think like off, the top of my head, patience, politeness. Um, what else is a virtue? Courage, um, honesty.
1: Uh, Probably depends on the context. I just googled it as well. I kind of would say patience is a little overrated, but then that's partially why I'm doing was a bad COO effectively in the last year. Is that I would move too fast on things, and then at 110 people, it's just like a terrible thing to do. Um, in early stages it's uh i don't think being patient is necessarily that good and moving fast is is valuable i think even though we're in search i think that's true i think it's it's like it scales with company
0: size and like group size but also i'm incredibly non-unpatient i guess uh, impatient uh but I, I've reconciled that and I'm like, all right, I'm going to be impatient with action and patient with results. <laughs> so that's now the, pithy, uh, nice, the nice. pithy
1: little saying that I do. Um, <laughs> Another framework to just have all the, the frameworks. Clients love frameworks. Teams love frameworks. Exactly. <laughs> um, well, oh, what's a career choice you considered but didn't pursue? I uh, went to Chapman because it had a film school. So that was a route, did creative writing, which kind of goes to content marketing, then sold out and changed the business. Um, So probably writing, uh, yeah, wanted to be a writer. So so I guess maybe I still pursued that. I'm not sure.
0: Yeah. Do you still aspire to, um, you know, writing a book or any sort of creative writing?
1: Uh, Yeah, maybe. I, I think I've thought about it, maybe in the context of Siege. How about you? I would love to
0: eventually. Yeah. We we've thought about it. Uh, I talked to Brian Massey a while ago, and he told me he's like, "Man, I started an agency just so I could write and speak." Uh, that's <laughs> the only reason I did this. And I'm like, "All right, what kind of value can I get out of um, <clears throat> running this business for my own personal goals?" And it's like, "Well, writing a book would be a great, you know, a very expensive business card in a way." So we've thought about doing something like that in that context. And yeah, I've always uh, I've always wanted to write books. It, it's just like you know, what to write about at what time, when do I have the knowledge? When, when is it valuable? All of those things, I think, um, are big questions. Cause it's not like you can just sit down, you know, in your spare time and, do it.
1: and yeah, yeah, exactly. You yeah, can't really it like has, it It clearly has value for services. It seems like, but yeah, to your degree to your point, you you have to go all in. Like I've seen a few service companies and I'm like, that seems kind of half baked what you're doing, but maybe yeah, it's and still is effective. Do that, if, you know, yeah.
0: I would I, yeah. if I wanted to do it. If I really put my time in, I would want it to be like something I'm really proud
1: of. You know, yeah, but it's, yeah, and it's one of those things where you're, I guess, patience and short-term focus is like if you, if you don't self-publish, your year out, you got to spend a ton of time working on this thing. So it's like, what is that? Venn? I keep saying Venn diagram, but that that with like the opportunity cost. Yeah, when does that feel right to do, or you're? gonna lose that time all up front in you're. but it's a huge long-term bet so uh, clearly people who are willing to play those games seem to win them for sure all right uh easy last one uh where can people find you online uh twitter and linkedin one of my favorite uh I don't know what your uh, Twitter name is, Alex. I think it is your name, but That's <laughs> my favorite. I, I am Alex Burkett. <laughs> okay, nice, close. One of my very advanced Twitter tips and, and LinkedIn tips is just make your username your first and last name. So mine's Ross Hudgens, at Ross Hudgens. And uh, I think I'm just Ross Hudgens on LinkedIn. That's a little bit easier to find me, but if you find me there at siegemedia.com and uh, our YouTube channel. Uh, love to see you and, and chat content marketing. All right. Well, that's easy. Thank you so much, Ross. This was super fun. Yeah, this was great. Thanks for having me, Alex.